You could be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll get there in just a minute, but right before we do, I did want to draw your attention to one other thing that is in our bulletin that I um, just want you to be thinking and praying about and hopefully participating in, and that is our To the Ends of the Earth campaign. I want you to be really seriously thinking about that particular campaign. You may remember, if you were with us for our annual meeting at the beginning of the year, that we had several goals we were trying to accomplish this year, and one of the goals that we have, which... When I mention it to people, they all kind of raise an eyebrow at me, but nonetheless, I believe it a valid goal. And our goal is that we want to support a missionary in every country of the world. Uh, I think there's 238, something like that. If you go on our website, website, you'll see the number there. I think there's 238 countries. Currently, that may change five or six times before we get this project done, but we want to support a missionary in every country of the world. Now, I'm not talking about supporting missionaries like we do now. Uh, if you look on our mission support board back there, uh, we support a variety of missionaries on an ongoing basis, uh, usually for $100 a month, uh, as long as we're in partnership with them, as long as they're on the field and serving. Uh, the ones that we choose to support, that's usually, I think, maybe we start some of them at 50. But somewhere along there, and then it just continues on. And, and we support several that way. Uh, this is a completely separate thing. We want to send a one-time gift to some missionary or mission organization somehow to support missions in every country of the world. Our initial goal was to do it all in 2012, which we have scaled that back a bit. Uh, we have determined that was un- impossible. So what we're trying to do now for 2012 is just concentrate on North America. And there's 40-some, maybe. Is that right, Brother Jack? 40-some, right around 40 different countries there. If you go to our website, you'll see the listing of all of the countries that are there, and here's what we'd like you to do. In the bulletin on the website, both places, there's three different ways that we believe people could get involved in this. Number one is to give. Give. We want to send a $50 gift to each nation. Uh, most of us could give 50 bucks. Most of us could. And if you can't, give what you can, and we'll just, we'll just add it to the pot, and when we have 50 bucks, we'll send it to some nation. Uh, we'd love to see people sponsor a nation. We'd love to see people, see people go out there and say, you know what, uh, Aruba has some specific significance to me, or Brother Phil the other day mentioned that Cuba was, Lord, let Cuba on his heart. Uh, whatever, some nation that maybe you would like to be involved in, uh, we'll let you sponsor that nation. Drop your 50 bucks in the plate and write down on there that you want that to go for the support of that nation, and we'll make sure that it does. There's a couple of other ways you can help as well. Obviously, you can pray, uh, but we also need, uh, there's an awful lot of uh, administrative work in a thing like this. Just trying to find missionaries in every one of these nations. There are some places that that's going to be a very difficult thing for us to do. And so we could use some help with all of those kinds of things. So look at that project. Think about that project. Pray about that project and get involved in it. I, I think it's going to be a wonderful thing. Can you imagine being able to get to heaven someday and have somebody come up from some country that just, you know, just in a little church service like this, you just decided one day, I'm going to, I'm going to support this country. And some person comes up to you and thanks you for that offering. Can you imagine that? We have the opportunity, and we have the means. We have the means. It's not that much money to support a a missionary in every nation uh, for $50. That would not cost that much for us to do as a church. We can do that. We could be a church that actually fulfills the Great Commission to that extent, and uh, I hope you'll get behind that. So think about it. Look at the website. Look at the bulletin and see if you can be involved in that in some way. All right, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. We're going to jump down to verse number 8. And start reading there. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. 
and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Father, Lord, we just pray now as we come to the word of God that you would speak. I pray, Lord, for your, uh, your infilling spirit. I pray, Father, that you would just control me and uh, cleanse me of anything that would render me un- unusable here today. I-, I just pray, Father, that I would be what you want me to be and use me as you would see fit. And I pray most of all, Lord, that you would just protect what I say. Help me to say the things that need to be said and protect me from saying things I ought not to say. Use this time. Be our teacher. Speak to hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who are visiting with us today, we are currently in a series in 1 Corinthians. We've been working our way through, and uh, that is our normal approach that we like to take here. We like to pick a book of the Bible and then work our way through that book. Not necessarily verse by verse, but at least section by section, paragraph by paragraph, something like that, just so we have some systematic way of working our way through the Bible and making sure that we don't leave anything out. There are a lot of things in the Bible that if we did not uh, have such a systematic approach, we might be tempted to say, you know, that's hard. I'm not sure I want to talk about that particular thing. Uh, Today is one of those. So uh, bear with me as we look at something that might be a little bit more difficult today. But that's one of the reasons that we do this. One of the reasons that we go section by section, verse by verse through the Bible is to make sure that we leave nothing out. Well, last week we began looking at chapter 3. And uh, we determined that as we looked at chapter 3, we could use a word to kind of guide our discussions. You remember that in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, the whole topic is division. Brother Phil mentioned this this morning in his Sunday school class. Division, which was a problem in this church at Corinth. And we've talked about it now. This is the sixth message, and every one has been about division. But uh, last week we determined that in chapter 3 we could use this word misunderstanding to guide our thoughts and to help us understand what Paul was saying here. The general topic is still division, but we said he was trying to say to them, you have a misunderstanding and that's one of the reasons why you are divided. Uh, I think he said there that uh, the Corinthians were suffering these problems with division and sectarianism, uh, at least in part because they misunderstood. They misunderstood, we learned uh, about spirituality. And the first few verses of chapter 3 tell us that. They, they thought that certain things made them spiritual. They thought that by 
picking their favorite preachers and, and dividing up and having this sectarian mindset, that that somehow made them spiritual. And, and, and Paul said, no, no, no. The very thing that you think makes you spiritual is actually, indeed, an evidence that you are yet carnal. So they misunderstood spirituality. And we also learned from verses 5 through 7 that they misunderstood the nature of leadership in the church. Well, we're going to move on. There was one third point that I just mentioned last week that uh, we'll talk about here today. Uh, and that was that not only did they misunderstand spirituality, not only did they misunderstand leadership, they also misunderstood the consequences of all of those things. They misunderstood that there is coming a day when they were going to be judged by God for all of these things. And the gist of that, if we think about that, and if we think about the words that we read here in the latter part of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, we, we see that that means we have to talk about something a little bit, might be, uncomfortable. And that is the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. Which is what I believe is being referred to, at least for the most part here, in this passage of Scripture. Now the judgment seat of Christ is something that's described several times in our Bible. It is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10 where we read that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's pretty clear, wouldn't you say? I think that's one of the easier verses to understand in the Bible. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to that he has done, whether good or bad. It's also mentioned in Romans chapter 14 and verse number 10. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, quite clear. And it's also described here, I think, in our text. Although we don't see those words used, I think it is describing the same thing. Verse number 8 describes the time of receiving reward based on labor. When is that? I think it's the judgment seat of Christ. Verse number 13 describes the day. You probably in your Bible notice that the word day is capitalized. It's a very specific day. Now, there, that particular phrase refers to the day of the Lord. It is used in Scripture oftentimes in a more general sense to just refer to the, the, the second coming of Christ. But the context here tells me that it has a narrower meaning here. It's not just the second coming in general. I think it's referring specifically to the judgment seat of Christ. Um, Verse number 14 speaks of future rewards. Verse number 15 speaks of future loss. When does that happen? The judgment seat of Christ. And so we need to understand the judgment seat of Christ this morning. It's an important thing. It's one of several judgments that are mentioned in our Bible, and that's a, a whole other topic that we won't get into today, but one that we want to understand. It's a judgment that specifically applies to Christians. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need not concern yourself with the judgment seat of Christ, because it won't apply to you. There is another very serious judgment that does apply to those who are unsaved, and that is the great white throne judgment. Those are the two major judgments, I suppose, that are mentioned in the Bible. The judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. Let me, let me share a little timeline with you and see if we can figure out where those things happen. The very next thing that's on God's prophetic timetable is what? Who can tell me? The rapture of the church is the very next event on the timeline. It's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I think it's pictured in Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 1 where God says, come up hither. I, I think that's a picture of the rapture of the church. But it's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's a time when Jesus will catch all believers up. That's what the word rapture means. It means caught up. And it's a time when Jesus is going to return, but not all the way to earth. We're going to meet him in the air. Those who have died, already died, are going to be caught up first. And then those of us 
who are alive and remain, hear the hope in my voice. Don't you hope you're in that group? Those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, the Bible says. That's the rapture. That's the next thing on the timeline. Absolutely nothing needs to happen for that to take place, right? It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. Immediately after the rapture, a seven-year clock starts to tick. It's timing a thing in the Bible that we call the tribulation. Seven years of judgment, such as has never been seen on the face of this earth and never will be again. It's referred to in the Bible as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's seen by some as a final and tremendous judgment on Israel. It's described in Daniel. It's described in Revelation. It's it's a time when a Satan-inspired individual who is referred to in the Bible as the Antichrist is going to assume power and uh, wreak all kinds of terror on the earth. Thankfully, because the church will have been raptured away before that happens, those of us who are believers don't need to worry about it. We'll be with the Lord. But that seven years will basically be hell on this earth. And so we have the rapture, then we have the tribulation, and then the third thing that's on the the prophetic timeline is the second coming of Jesus Christ in glory. At the very conclusion of that revel- of that tribulation, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to step foot on this, on the earth. He's going to establish uh, his kingdom centered in Jerusalem, and he's going to reign from there for a thousand years. Uh, when he comes back, he is going to defeat the Antichrist in a terrible battle at the Battle of Armageddon. And uh, he's going to establish a wonderful, wonderful kingdom that will last for a thousand years. Interestingly, at the beginning of that time, Satan is going to be bound up and kind of set aside. You can read about those things in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. The fourth thing that's going to happen is that millennial reign. It's a thousand year earthly reign where Jesus Christ will literally reign on peace on earth. It's a time of peace. It's the time when the lion will lay down with the lamb. It's going to be a wonderful time when everybody will know that the Messiah reigns. From Jerusalem. At the end of that thousand years, Satan is going to be loosed. He's going to rampage across this earth in one desperate final attempt to gather the lost of the world together against Christ. Christ is going to defeat him totally and finally for all time. And then we're going to have the final prophetic event, and that is the new heaven and the new earth. The old will be undone, replaced with the new, and Christ and his followers will enjoy the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever endeavor. Revelation chapter 22, 21 and 22. So you got that? That's the timeline. Rapture, tribulation, second coming in glory, millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, new heavens and new earth, eternity with Jesus. You got that? That's what's yet to come. And probably some of you are sitting there and you're saying to yourselves, well, that's just, that's just cool, preacher. That's interesting stuff. But I thought you were talking about judgments. I didn't hear a single word in there about judgment. Where does the judgment seat of Christ fall in there? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you where the judgment seat of Christ falls in there. Remember I said that the very next thing that takes place is the rapture? And then we will be in heaven while the tribulation is taking place here on earth? You know what we're going to be doing up there while the tribulation is taking place here on earth? We're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. At least that's where most scholars believe it's going to take place. And so, here's the interesting part about that. Imminent is the word we use related to the rapture. We like to say the fact that there's absolutely nothing that stands between us and the rapture. We like to describe the fact that it could happen at any second. And it's true, it could. There's no prophecy that needs to be fooled. Nothing, nothing. But immediately thereafter is the judgment seat of Christ. So what that means is, Christian, that you and I are this close to the judgment seat of Christ at any time. Any time. It is just as imminent for us as is 
the rapture. One person said it like this. He said, according to the word of God, the testimony of the Son of God, and the corroborative and unbroken testimony of the apostles, there is not the thickness of tissue paper between us who are Christians and the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's an interesting thought, don't you think? So let's return to our text and see if we can see a few things about this judgment. See if we can learn something about it today. Three thoughts I'll share with you. The first one is this. The judgment is individual. The judgment is individual. Look at verse number 8. Verse number 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Look at verse number 13. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by, by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Notice the use of the words, each one. Each one is going to deal with the judgment seat of Christ. Nobody is going to stand there with you. Nobody is going to stand there with me. Each of us is going to stand before the judgment, of Christ, judgment seat of Christ. We're going to be alone, we're going to stand, and we're going to give an account to God. It's an interesting thought. Now, let's be clear about what the judgment seat of Christ is. It is a judgment for service, not for sin. We've got to make sure we understand that. We're not going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and have to deal with sin. See, Jesus already took care of that. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, the sin question is resolved, as we talked about in our men's Bible study the other night. If you go over to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 12, you see that Christ's sacrifices, they're referred as one sacrifice for sins forever. For the believer in Jesus Christ, there's no need to worry about it ever again because the sin problem was dealt with on the cross. I love Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1 that says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. There is no further judgment for sin. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. It was finished. Paid in full. It says that on my tie. Paid in full. Which is literally what those words mean. It is finished. The Greek word to tell us thy, paid in full. John chapter 5 and verse number 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. No further judgment for sin. So I want to make sure we're clear on that this morning. It's very important to understand that what we're talking about when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ is not sin. We're not going to be standing there before him at that judgment and giving an account for sin. Because if we were to try, he would look at us and say, what are you talking about? I, your sin's gone. I don't even remember it. And there is no sin. That's not the point. Let's also be clear about something else. We say it is a judgment for service, but we need to understand this. There is no amount of service. Good deeds or good works or whatever words you want to use. There's no amount of that that's going to get you to heaven in the first place. You know that, right? We have to be clear about that. If any of us was able, if any of us had it in us to be good enough or to do enough good works to get to heaven, Jesus would not have had to come in the first place. He had to come because we're not. He had to come because none of us could have got there any other way. And so it's important to understand that as well. The Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In Titus chapter 3, it says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So I hope I'm making those two points clear, because that's important. It's important. 
We need to understand the judgment of the seed of Christ has nothing to do with salvation. It pertains only to those who have already been saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. Am I being clear on that? I see all kinds of quizzical looks. Have I got something on my face? I mean, why, why all the quizzical looks? There's, I want to make sure we're clear on these two things. And then there's another thing I want to make sure that we're really clear about, and that is this. Even though you can't become a Christian by doing good works, if you are one, you're going to do good works. Now, you need to be clear about that as well, because that's where the judgment seat of Christ makes sense. That's what we're going to be judged for at the judgment seat of Christ. Those good works which Christians do are service for the Lord after we get saved. And it's no such thing as a Christian who uh, can really live without some, some level of service. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And we have to do something. We, there's no such thing, I don't think, as somebody who's not going to have some level of service uh, as a result of their salvation. Now, I realize people have differing views on this thing. And I realize that some people would probably say I'm all wet with what I'm teaching here this morning. But I, I, I believe there are some things we cannot deny. And one of those is that there is a judgment seat of Christ. That's clearly, clearly, clearly taught in the Bible. And it is for all of us. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 10 say that absolutely. And so does Romans 14.10. And so the whole mass of believers is included. There's none of us who are going to escape it. And the other thing I don't think we can get away from is that it is also for each of us, as we see here. So it's going to be individual. Every single one of us is going to stand and give an account. Does this not give you pause? Does this not make you want to stop and think a little bit? You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to give an account for our own labor. That's what verse number 8 says. We're going to give an account for our work. That's what verse 13 says. Doesn't it give you pause? Leonard Ravenhill said, unsupported by friend, wife, or attorney, each of us must one day stand before Jehovah's awful throne. Doesn't that make you stop and think? J. Dwight Pentecost said, there are a few doctrines of greater importance to the child of God than the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ. St. Augustine said, nothing has contributed more powerfully to wean me from all that held me down to earth than the thought constantly dwelt on of the last account. So the judgment seat of Christ is, first of all, an individual judgment, meaning that I alone am going to stand before God and I'm going to give an account, an account of all that I have done since I was saved. So will you, you and everybody else that names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that thought ought to prompt us on to greater faithfulness. I think it ought to motivate us to stay the course. I think it ought to cause us to really think about uh, the fact that when I stand before him, I want to have, I want to have something there other than something I'd have to hang my head over. I want to have something that will stand the test. A.W. Tozer said, Throughout the Christian church as we know it today, all sense of accountability to God seems to have been lost. And that's a tragedy. And I think it's due at least in part to the fact that we ignore it. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about the judgment seat of Christ. So judgment at the judgment seat of Christ is, first of all, individual. I must give an account. Say it with me, Christian. I must give an account. Say it again. I must give an account. All right. Second thing. 
The judgment is qualitative. First of all, it's individual. Secondly, it's qualitative. Look at verse number 12. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If any man's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, as I studied this this week, I found all kinds of disagreements and all kinds of interesting interpretations of what is meant by the gold, silver, and precious stones and the wood, hay, and stubble, if you're looking at a King James Bible or straw, as we see here. An example. Here's one source that I consulted said this. It said the materials used in the building may be interpreted in at least four ways. Number one, the gold, silver, and costly stones refer to the enduring quality of the builder's work, and the wood, hay, or straw suggest work that is temporary and valueless. That makes sense. Number two, the three expensive materials suggest sound doctrine, which the builder builds into people's lives, and the three valueless materials are false doctrines. I'm not sure I see that one there. Number three, the first three materials refer to the worker's worthy motives, and the other three point to his unworthy motives. Possible. And number four, the gold, silver, and costly stones refer to believers who constitute the church, and the wood, hay, or straw represent unregenerate people present in the church. I don't see that one. But I mentioned that just to point out that there is disagreement. There's a lot of different interpretive stuff that goes on as people try to figure out what Paul meant by the gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and stubble. One guy, Carl G. Johnson, wrote a book called The Account Which We Must Give, and here's what he said, and I like, I like this. I think, I think he kind of nails it. He said, there is a distinct contrast in the materials. Gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. The gold, silver, and precious stones speak figuratively figuratively, of that which is permanent, in contrast to that which is perishing, represented by the wood, hay, and stubble. It speaks of worthiness in contrast to worthlessness, of quality in contrast to quantity, of the spirit in contrast to the flesh, in living for eternity in contrast to living only for time, of that which is done in the will of God in contrast to that which is done in the will of man, of that which is done for the glory of God in contrast to that which is done. For the glory of man. You see, I think that the things that we spend our time on, the things that we invest our life in here on this earth, fall into two categories, and only two. Only two. Those things that matter to the kingdom of God and those things that do not. And I think that's what the judgment seat of Christ is going to sort out. All those issues. And so I again have to ask, doesn't it give you pause? Doesn't it make you stop and think? I can't help as I, as I read this, and it's been on my mind this week because I've been, I've been thinking about this and working over this passage in my mind. I find myself thinking of a day when I alone will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ holding figuratively in my hands everything that I've ever done since I was saved. And I, I, I watch as Jesus reaches out and takes those out of my hands and tosses them into the fire. And I find myself wondering, will anything be left? Anything. Doesn't it give you pause? Doesn't it make you stop and think? Charles Luther put it well in his time-honored hymn. He said, Must I go and empty-handed? Thus my dear Redeemer meet. Not one day of service give him. Lay no trophy at his feet. Not at death I shrink or falter, for my Savior saves me now. But to meet him, empty-handed, thought of that now clouds my brow. 
The Lanny Wolf Trio used to sing a song called Only One Life. I don't remember it all. I just remember one line of it that said, Only one life, so soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ now will last. And so the judgment is, first of all, individual, and secondly, qualitative. We will be judged for the quality of our service since we were saved. And before I get off this, there's, there's one other thing that's very, very important that you must see. Look again at verse number 8. Look again at verse number 8, and I want you to read it very carefully. It says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. I titled the message that today because I think that's the key thought. According to his own labor. We have to see something here. The reward is not based on success. Do you see that there? The reward is based on labor. The loss of reward is not based on lack of success. It's based on lack of labor. As we have seen many times before, God is not interested in whether or not we succeed. He's interested in our faithfulness. Remember verse number 7? We talked about this last week. Verse number 7 says, So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. God's the one who makes it grow. We're just supposed to do our part. Do our job. Do the task that he's assigned to us. And he'll take care of all the rest of that. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25. He said, there will be a day when we will hear these words, well done, thou good and faithful. Not successful, doesn't say that. Good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So, the judgment is first of all individual. Secondly, it is qualitative. And finally, look at verses 14 and 15. Judgment means reward and loss. Well, I guess we could say reward or loss. Verse number 14. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. And we've talked about this throughout the previous two points, so I'm not going to hammer it here now. I'm just going to mention it briefly. But it is important for us to see that the judgment seat of Christ is not just a time for reward. It's also a time for loss of reward. Verses 14 and first, uh, verses 14 and 15 tell us that the reward is something other than salvation, and so is the loss. Specifically says that of the loss. Uh, it's not salvation. You'll still be saved, yet so as by fire. I've heard it taught before, and you probably have too, that the judgment seat of Christ will only be a happy time. You heard that? It'll only be a time of rewards. It'll only be a time when we receive reward for that which we have done. And I actually think there is some, some scriptural uh, merit to that. If we flip over just one chapter and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 5, you'll notice it says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. If you're holding a King James Bible that says, Then every man will have praise of God. And so there is some indication that there's going to be something good for everybody at the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, I, I think it's, it's wonderful to think about the Lord uh, looking at us, and he, he's going to be able to find something to commend in every believer, probably more than we could possibly imagine. But we can't water down the truth. And the truth says that not only is there reward, there is also loss. Every passage that discusses the judgment seat of Christ implies not only reward, but also loss of reward. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 states it plainly. 2 Corinthians 5.10 clearly says that we will receive either good or bad at the judgment seat of Christ, and Romans 14.10 implies the same thing. So I won't beat on that. 
but we need to understand it. The judgment seat of of Christ is both reward and loss. So what shall we say to these things? What does this mean to us? How shall we respond as believers to the impending judgment seat of Christ? I've thought about that all this week. I thought, now what am I going to do? Am I just going to stand up here and beat these people to death about the fact that there's a judgment seat of Christ and have everybody go walking out here all hangdog and worried about it? Is that what we're going to do? There's got to be some uh, application of this truth to our lives. Four thoughts come to my mind. Perhaps you can think of some more, but I'm just going to mention them. It won't take me a minute, and then we'll be done. Number one is this. In light of the judgment seat of Christ, don't waste the time that remains. Don't waste the time that remains. Obviously, some of us have more time remaining than others. I love the words of Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek The Next Generation. He said one time, and one of the, a quote that means more to me every day, he said one time these words. He said, I am increasingly aware that the years that lie ahead are fewer than the years that have gone before. Isn't that true? But you know, it doesn't matter how much time we have left. Whatever time we have left, we can use it for the glory of God. Whatever time we have left, we can ensure that we finish strong. And so, in light of the judgment seat of Christ, don't waste the time. That remains. Number two, in light of the judgment seat of Christ, don't hide your talents in the earth. Don't hide your talents. What has God given you to do? What gifts? What talents has He given you? What assignment, as we saw last week, He gives us assignments to do. Using them for Him and His kingdom are going to result in perhaps gold and silver and precious stones at the judgment seat of Christ, but taking them and burying them in the earth and not using them at all? Wood, hay, stubble. And so don't hide your talents in the earth. And remember, it's not the talent itself. It's the faithful exercise of it. Not everybody's gifts and talents are flashy. Not everybody's gifts and talents are public. God has given us things to do, and all he asks us to do is do them. And he judges us for our faithfulness, not the results. This past Wednesday, in prayer meeting, we were taking prayer requests, as we always do on Wednesday night. And one of the members spoke up and said that they wanted to share praise. And the praise was... Over the last couple of weeks, they'd had a very, very, very difficult time. And they'd been going through a hard and discouraging time. And she walked out to her mailbox one time during the midst of this and gathered up her mail. And in the midst of that mail, there was a card. It was just a little card. And it was sent from somebody in this church to her, just encouraging her. Now, I don't know who sent that card, although I I have a pretty good idea. But... Whoever it was, she said she just wanted to praise God for the way that uplifted and encouraged her soul. You know what? That person, when they sat down to write that card, no doubt did not look at that card and say, you know what, this is gold. But when they get to the judgment seat of Christ, gold, silver, precious stones. Because God gave them a gift. God gave them the ability to do something. God gave them a talent and they used it for his glory. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. At the judgment seat of Christ. So in light of the judgment seat, don't hide your talents in the earth. Number three, in light of the judgment seat of Christ, do strive for the reward. Now, this might sound selfish, but here's, the, here's an interesting thought. There's a reward to be won. Do you see that there? Now, I don't understand what that means. I, I, I don't have the slightest idea exactly what that reward is. There, we could talk about crowns and things like that that are mentioned in the Bible. But here, here's, the, here's the thing. There's a reward. Did you get that? There's a reward. And I am just selfish enough that I want it. Don't you want it? 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And so I think one of the things we ought to do in light of the judgment seat of Christ is be striving for that reward. Living in such a way that when you get there, when you get there, you're going to have something as a reward. And number four, in light of the judgment seat of Christ, do allow the thought of the coming day to keep you focused. And I thought about this one for a bit. I don't believe for a minute that the Holy Spirit put this in the Bible so we would be afraid. I don't believe that that is supposed to be the result of this at all. I think the Holy Spirit put this in the Bible not so we should fear, but rather so we should focus. Keep our mind on what it ought to be on. Focus on serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Those of you who know me know that I have 50,000 different hobbies, and I'm no good at any one of them. But I, I have a lot of goofy things I like to do. And one of the things I like to do is I like to shoot bows and arrows. I like archery. Consequently, I, I like to watch a fellow on television by the name of Byron Ferguson. I don't know if anybody you know who Byron Ferguson is. He's a trick shot archer. And one time on an episode of Impossible Shots on television, Byron Ferguson shot a BB off of a golf tee with a longbow and an arrow and never touched the golf tee. A BB. Now, how big is a BB? Well, that wasn't the amazing thing. That wasn't the thing that struck me. The thing that that really amazed me was somebody was asking him about that afterwards, and he said, it doesn't matter the size of the target. He says, I aim at the center. And the center is the same size no matter what you're aiming at. What he was saying was, you focus on that and you'll hit it. And I think that's the purpose here. I think that's what God is telling us here. We need to focus And if we keep our minds and our thoughts on that coming day, it'll help us to stay focused and keep us on track for the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a fellow by the name of Isaac the Syrian. He was a mystic in the 7th century, and he said this, and I'll close with this quote. He said, prepare your heart for your departure. If you are wise, you will expect it every hour. And perhaps that's the best way to sum it up.